Hey, volleyball coaches, the new USA Volleyball Coach Academy is available now. Subscribers will have access to engaging interactive modules taught by top coaches from across the country, including national team coaches and staff. From fundamentals to advanced play, all coaching content is based on the USA Volleyball development model to help you coach the whole athlete. USA Volleyball members will have free access to the bronze tier. When you're ready to level up, you can subscribe to the silver or gold tiers. Live online sessions are only available in the gold tier. Watch out for more information on USA Volleyball social media and the USA Volleyball website. Colorado. This is the USA Volleyball Show. And here are your hosts, Clarence Hughes and Stephen Munson. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the USA Volleyball Show. As a reminder, you should already know this, but we are the official podcast of USA Volleyball. Stephen, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great, <laughs> Clarence. I'm doing great. This is a very, very special episode indeed uh a career highlight for me personally uh i think i can say that for for you as well and uh, a milestone moment for the podcast uh if you didn't listen to last episode you missed our announcement but uh this past saturday we did a live podcast episode at the tattered cover in mcgregor square denver colorado with if gold is our destiny author sean murray uh, thank you so much again to Sean for inviting us to to his book event, letting us crash the event. Oh, yeah. A uh, little teaser there for the promo if you didn't see that on social media. Uh, <laughs> but his book, If Gold, Our, if Gold Is Our Destiny, recounts the journey of the U.S. men's national team on their way to the 1984 Olympic gold medal. Pick it up at your local bookstore or on Amazon in hardback and ebook. Clarence, I... <laughs> What did you think of the experience? That was just incredible for me. That was that was amazing. I just overall, um, just again the live audience feel and you know just so cool. getting to hear you know the same stories from different point of views. Yep, uh, and just learning how you know Sean had to put everything together. Like I, I don't, I wouldn't have been able, been able to do that. Like just. From yeah, putting all the story, all different stories, different stories together, yeah. And yeah, trying to capture point of views and trying to capture the moment, and you know, hearing the real story behind you know the cover page too. That's, oh yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> which is amazing. And we're not going to get into too much of a spoiler there, but just amazing overall. And I'm so thankful that our team had a chance to, you know, just set everything up and 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 cover it. It was just I I have no words for it. Just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, before this, we've done live-ish type episodes where you and I maybe uh, get get in a corner of a, of a hallway at a convention <laughs> center uh, just for good audio and, and people are walking by staring at us uh, or maybe we're at a championship desk. But yeah, like you said, the live audience feel was just incredible. And thank you again to everyone who showed up to, to support the book and support the podcast. But let's just dive right into this episode. Um, 
uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get kicked off here with the news with Hughes. Uh, just want to first and first and formally congratulate the U.S. men's U21 team on winning gold at the Pan American Cup in Havana, Cuba. And in doing so, they have qualified for the 2023 FIVB U21 World Championship. So big congratulations to that team right there. Um, also, Tim Brewster and Kyle Friend also won their second straight gold on the Norseka Beach Tour, and Katie Lindstrom and Tegan Van Gunst joined them to win their first international gold at the Norseka Managua Beach event in Nicaragua. Whew. Got well done there. there. That was nice. That was some uh, smooth. A little bit of tongue twisters <laughs> right there. Glad I didn't stutter like I just did there. But we're not done yet. Also, Ladies and gentlemen, registration is now open for the Beach Collegiate Challenge on November 11th through the 13th in Huntington Beach, California. This event will be held alongside the AVP Tour Series Pro Event and AVP Juniors West Coast Championships that same weekend in Huntington Beach. A lot of volleyball going on, you guys. SoCal people, local people, SoCal, everybody. Don't miss it. I wish I was there. I actually might be taking some vacation time around that time. I might, I might have to pop up and see this book on a flight right now. <laughs> but anyways, also just a heads up, you can earn a chance to earn a spot at nationals. That's right. That chance will be coming up in Salt Lake City, Utah on the November. Whoa, excuse me there. On December 2nd through the 4th. Don't wait. Register right now for the Mountain Classic Boys Junior National Qualifier before it is too late. Registration for that tournament is open right now. Do not hesitate. Register your teams now. That is the first year that we are holding hosting the Boys Mountain Classic Qualifier in Salt Lake City. This is a big deal. So be a part of history. For more information on these and all other news items, go to usavolleyball.org for more information. All right, on to today's exciting episode. Enjoy our first ever live audience show featuring If Gold Is Our Destiny author Sean Murray, 1984 U.S. men's head coach Doug Beal, and 1984 U.S. men's captain and Olympic gold medalist Chris Marlowe. Lights, cameras, action. Hello, everybody, and welcome. A very special welcome from Denver, Colorado, live at Tattered Cover here in McGregor Square. Um, this is the first time ever we've had where we've had a live studio audience. So give a big round of applause for yourselves. <laughs> wow. The USA Volleyball Show. What episode are we on, Steven? This will be 47. 47. Episode wow. 47. We started a year and a half ago, and this is our first why don't ever. You, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, yeah. Wow. Look at that. <laughs> Everyone, for those of you who don't know, my name is Clarence Hughes, event manager at USA Volleyball, and also co-host of the USA Volleyball Show. Yep. And my name is Steven Munson. I am the digital media and engagement manager at USA Volleyball, as well as a co-host on this podcast. Really excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming out, friends and family. Um, let's just uh, jump right into it. We're, we're not alone here. We have three amazing guests, and we're really excited for this. Um, starting off, we have Sean Murray, founder and president of Real Time Performance, a leadership training and organization development firm, and the reason we're all here, the author of 
if gold is our destiny, how a team of Mavericks came together for Olympic glory. Sean, thank you so much for letting us crash this event. <laughs> <laughs> you are welcome. It's really an honor to be here and excited to talk about the book. And thank you to the Tattered Cover for hosting it too. Yep. Thank you, Tattered Cover. And to your left, I had to get my directions right, to your left, Doug Beal, uh, the head coach of the 1984 U.S. men's Olympic gold medal team, former CEO of USA Volleyball, and now chair at USA Surfing. <laughs> which we, is a little funny. We might get into that a little bit later, yeah. but... Uh, Quite the career change. You've got all that written down, though. Huh? I do, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, this is just from the book, uh, but we'll talk <laughs> yeah. about that later. Right, <laughs> and to your left, Chris Marlowe, captain of the 1984 U.S. Men's Olympic gold medal team, the play-by-play voice for the Denver Nuggets. Chris, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you for, for having us. the invitation. Yeah. Sean, thank you again for inviting us. Tattered cover, thank you. For having us here, audience, thank you so much for being here. We're just going to jump right into this. Uh, first question here, Sean, this is for you. You have a personal connection to this book. I, I imagine that's probably a big reason why you wrote this book. But can you just talk about why, yeah, why you wrote this book? Yeah, well, my father, Don Murray, was one of two team sort of sports psychologists that were consulting to the team. And uh my father, Don, and his partner, Chuck Johnson, got involved actually in the 70s when Doug was still a player on the national team. Actually, Chris was a player on the national team at the time, too. And um, I didn't know a lot about the work my father was doing with the team. But I do remember being excited about going to the Olympics in 1984. And I watched this team and they really inspired me. They inspired a lot of people, the country, really. And it was a, it was a fantastic experience uh, later. I thought of, uh, my wife about five years ago gave me a book to read called Boys in the Boat. And maybe some of you have heard of it. It's a Olympic story of a crew team from the University of Washington that ends up going to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, the Nazi Olympics and, and beating the Nazi boat. And it's just an incredible story. I was inspired by it. And I thought, you know, I, in the work I do in leadership development and organization development, I thought it'd be great to have a story, a book that would teach and, and really study how a team comes together, how it, what it takes to, to perform at that level and just study a team that, that makes it to its highest, you know, level of the sport. And, and I was thinking, well, there was that team when I was uh, 13 years old in Los Angeles that won gold. All I really remembered was they won gold and they had been on an outward bound uh, experience. And I, th I, I thought, well, there's probably a story there. And, and that just kind of got me into it. And that, so that's my connection. Mm -hmm. Well, do you, do you remember like knowing much about volleyball when you were, when you when your dad was involved with the team before, before that at all? Well, you know, I'm, I'm 51 and a lot of people from my generation remember that team and got really into volleyball. Yep. You know, I, and even now when I've talked to people who've read the book, uh, many people have said, you know, that was the team that got me into volleyball. And uh, so I was excited about volleyball at the time I got into it. It didn't last. I was more into basketball. So I didn't actually pursue, you know, I am five uh, eleven, So I, you know, um, but anyway, that's I, I ended up uh, not being a volleyball player, but uh, yeah, definitely an inspiring team. Mm -hmm. You know, for uh, Doug and Chris. So when Sean reached out to you, you know, told you about the book, what were your what were your first thoughts, your initial reactions to it? I, I thought, what took him so long? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I think 
uh, lots of us who get into coaching, uh, you know, have a, a little success, um, think that there's, I don't know, that there are stories about almost every team that we've ever been involved with. Um, and honestly, I, I think I'd been approached a couple of times and nothing ever came of it. You know, I, I think for years, volleyball was sort of the, uh, the the little hidden secret sport maybe in the country in, in some respect and, and even within even though the it Olympic was invented movement, here even though it was invented yeah. here yeah <laughs> and I'm not sure that uh, a big percentage of the population would ever know that that's right yeah um, so I, I I thought it was great uh, hopefully Sean thinks I encouraged him um, you know gosh he he's writing through the pandemic and. Uh, spending a, a ton of time uh, and a lot of, of money and resources. And uh, I think anybody that's ever uh, started a project like this uh, knows it doesn't uh, doesn't happen overnight. And, uh, you know, reaching out to all the players, I, I was just e- enormously impressed that he was able to connect to every player on the team and, yeah. uh, and get them all to respond. That's uh, I tell them all the time. That's far more than I would have been able to get, I think, for him. So. I think it was great. I do remember one question back to me. You said, have you considered maybe just writing an article? Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. short story. Start yeah. with something manageable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> A couple paragraphs, maybe. No, I, I, uh, yeah, he, his, uh, I mean, he's, he's a lot like his dad. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Don was just a, a wonderful uh, advisor, a wonderful partner, a wonderful um, addition to the the group that was supporting the the program and the team and um, uh, you know I, I don't know they just had wonderful ideas and weren't afraid to think creatively and, and outside the box and um, I, I think Sean you know really did a great service uh, obviously to the team and, and to the to the success we had but uh, as much to his dad and and uh, the role that not just as uh, sort of the traditional sports psychologist that really wasn't his dad's role it was just uh, all about a group and how do you make the group function better and and where are the uh, the issues that might pop up and how do we think creatively about addressing those and being ahead of the curve and anticipating things and i i just think that was uh, a, a lot about uh, sean also so I, mm-hmm. I i think he did a great job so that, that's why Doug Beal was the coach. <laughs> he has all the, the memories and the numbers and the stats and all that stuff. When I heard that Sean was going to write the book, the only thing I thought about, I hope he puts me on the cover. <laughs> iconic photo. Oh, yeah. Should be there. <laughs> Which tells you a lot about the issues that we dealt with. During the, during I had the whole 12 program. players that wanted their picture yeah. on the cover. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I like Doug. You get approached. Uh, by a lot of people on different projects, books, movies. Can you do a podcast? Can you do a, a documentary about volleyball? And uh, what made me excited about this project is that, uh, you know, Sean really seemed serious about it. And, you know, he would call me at all times uh, during the day. And is this right? How about this? What did you do? And extensive interviews where he, he really laid it out. He went in great detail and he wanted to make sure he, he got it right. And kind of when I read the book, I heard a lot of stuff that I I had forgotten about uh, that experience uh, 
and uh, you know how long, what kind of a journey it was for many of us, uh, for for Doug the coach and Bill Neville and Tony Crab and all the players that were on the team and eventually got cut from the team. It it was a it was it was a long time in the making. So uh, I was really excited when the book came out. When I found out I was going to be on the cover, I was I kind of smiled. <laughs> it was just like wow, and uh, you know I, I I hope it's a a big success for you, Sean. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> you know, Sean, how do you take all of those perspectives and the stories and the point of views and put it all together into one conducive book? Well, you know, you got to learn. The one thing I had to learn in the project was how to tell a story. It's there's got to be a beginning, a middle and end and all that and kind of the hero's journey. And and, you know, one one reason that I did spend more time interviewing Chris is he had a very interesting role in the story, a very dramatic role. And uh, I learned that if you ever go to a movie, you'll, you'll know there's a, an all is lost moment. You know, there's a moment in every movie. It's usually two thirds of the way through where it just looks like it's not going to happen. You know, whatever it is, it's, it's romantic comedy, the boy, the, the, the man and the girl, they're not going to get together, you know, and, or it, whatever it is. And, and, and Chris uh, just embodied, the more I learned about the story of the team, I realized that, that Chris sort of embodied a lot of the theme of the book, which was about a team. And, and, and Chris also had an all is lost moment, you know, a moment where it didn't look like he was going to be on this team in 84 and fate and other things and fortune and turned his way. And he ended up not only being on the team, so he was cut and we can probably talk about that, but he was cut about four months before, but he was invited back on the team due to an injury to another player and then immediately voted captain. And, uh, and so, uh, I guess your, your question is about how do you bring all these stories together? You, you can't tell 12, you know, there were 12 players on the team. There were another six or eight players that were really closely associated with the team. I couldn't write a book that was, you know, one twelfth of the time was about each player and their story. I had to kind of figure out how to tell a story that the reader was going to be interested in and draw them in. And uh, so that's what I ended up uh, with. It was a bit of a journey, but that's if you if you get a chance to read it, you hopefully you'll be caught up in the drama of it, too. Are we asking questions about the book or actually what we're doing on at the time? Because I have direct questions for Mr. Beal. Yeah, we will do uh, an audience Q&A right after this, actually. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Uh, Chris Marlowe's on my show 40 times a year. I would say 40. Maybe more. 50. Uh, 50. <laughs> uh, I know how you actually isolated Karchkoi. How did you find and isolate all the Spurs and Bob Smirklick? to be in that service receive situation that you put together. We want to get into yeah, this Yeah, we now. can go into it. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did we do that? Um, the big guys couldn't pass very well, <laughs> as I remember it. Yeah, that's, big a, <laughs> that's a big part of it. Um, you know, uh, very, very few teams just go in this direction without any bumps in the road. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty unusual. Um, we came back from a competition that was pretty disappointing um, and just committed. To, uh, we need to look at everything. This is just crazy. And, and I actually think the first uh, voice that said, um, why, why are we having these big guys pass? They can't pass was Tony Crabb. And Bill jumped in, and I was probably sort of late to that party. Um, uh, 
I think coaches tend to be conservative, not politically conservative, but we don't like to change. Uh, we want things to be uh, as we expect them to be. You know, what's the normal thing? I, I want I want to know how the team is going to perform. So you change a lot of things and it's sort of a crapshoot. And that makes coaches uncomfortable, makes me uncomfortable. Um so we, I don't know, but we were pretty disappointed and we figured we had to make some changes and we were willing to do that. And one of the things we talked about a lot was, you know, to be great, I think you, you have to be willing to risk failing. Uh, you have to sort of embrace it in, in a sense. And um, you just have to get comfortable with it somehow. And, and I don't know that there's a magic to it, but... Um, I gotta remember a day in practice and Chris and I, before we sat down here, we were talking about one of the players and, uh, some drill. And I said to this player, you know, the corner of the court, that's where we want you to stand. Put one foot on that line, put a foot on this line. And it was like, I'm not going to swear here because <laughs> it's recorded, but he, you know, are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Um, and if you'd like to be on the court, that's the spot you'll stand in. And, you know, so we, I mean, there, it wasn't like a piece of cake and it evolved. And, um, you know, we were blessed with two guys and, and frankly, three or four because Karch and, and, and Aldis didn't play a hundred percent of the time. And we, we thought it was important to play a lot of players. I still think it's important. Um, and so, you know, Dave Saunders played that role. Uh, Paul Sunderland played that role. I mean, we had other guys that could that could do that. And, uh, you know, it kind of evolved. Um, and, and some of the things we did with other parts of the game uh, evolved. But they were, you know, they were a little different at the time, uh, for sure. And I think, you know, as much as uh, I, I said this a million times to Sean, um, you know, if you're going to write a volleyball book, you, you know, you're, you're an idiot. You're wasting your time. Nobody's going to buy it. Don't put any drills in there. Don't don't tell people how to play the game. Nobody cares about that. If you really can tell a story, I think there's a there's some interesting personalities on this team. And um, and and the two coaches that work with me, you know, Bill and Tony, I think were just really impactful. They couldn't be more different. And, and that really helped. They played off each other and threw things out at each other that helped us grow and helped us change. And certainly for me, uh, that was, it was huge. So. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, don't be afraid of failure. One, one story that stuck out to me in the book was yeah. Bill would come up with all these drills and stuff and want to try new things. And uh, he had a great idea for a play or, or a drill for one practice and it flopped failed immediately it did not work and uh the players didn't get mad they're yeah. you know they respected bill in his mind uh for the game and yeah. um they moved on to whatever next whatever i got the next mad. one yeah i'm sure you yeah i thought it, I thought, I thought it was the stupidest thing i'd ever seen in my life <laughs> and uh I, I remember the drill i think you know and uh and i you know bill's one of my you know dearest friends but yeah. um but yeah we did it and you know so we wasted i don't know 15 minutes uh doing doing some idiot thing and yeah it's a lot of time all part yeah. of the journey yeah the players <laughs> the players were willing to try it and and i think to some to some degree chris will have a different perspective on this um yeah because you know we were going to be in the olympics it's a huge lever i, I mean you 
I mean, I said it a, a bunch of times. We, we were just really fortunate in many ways. So we were going to be in the Olympics for the first time since 1968 uh, with a men's team. And, uh, you know, at some point you can say, you don't have to like this, but you, you want to be in the Olympics or you don't want to be in the Olympics. So we're going to go and we're going to, we're going to take the players that uh, are, are willing to do the things that we think are, are important. And I mean, it's not sort of my way or the highway, but, but there's an element of that in there. Yeah. As we're, you know, Chris hearing really these stories. wants to get in right yeah, now. Chris, please. <laughs> no, I, 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 I just, uh, it's interesting. You talk about that. I, I remember vividly practicing, uh, against the Russian plays. Uh, the Russians had a very tricky free ball play where they, uh, their ball would come over and the, the, the guy would set it up to a hitter and you think the hitter's going to hit and he doesn't. He jumps and he sets it and the guy loops around him. We practice against that play for a year and a half, just just getting ready for the Russians. Then, interestingly, the Russians never came. Yeah. So, uh, and, and we got good at it. I we think. were really good at it. We, we got good at running it. We, we got great at running it. We got great at blocking it. And uh, and we never got a chance to use it. But I, I just think you try stuff in practice. And uh, I, re I remember the big guys. I was a setter. And I remember the big guys. They, they, were, they were unhappy. They didn't want to go over into the corner and stand there and not be able to pass the ball. That was kind of you, – you were – you were expected to play all elements of the game, but uh, Doug and the coaches kind of figured out, Hey, it's going to be much better if we specialize. Let's have these guys pass it and the big guys, you get over there. And when you get to the front line, you hit it and you block it. And uh, I, I think that was one of the keys to our success. But before that, I can only remember that happening in the International Volleyball Association where they did not rotate. They had the big guy in the left front and big guy in the middle front, and the big guy in the right front. And they had a setter and then two people playing defense. And the specialization worked a lot better. It's just better because yeah. the little people were digging and the big people were hitting and it was great. And I think that's that's how we caught up so quickly, I think, to the rest of the teams in the world that we were specializing, using our talents and and, and practicing, uh, you know, 97 hours a week like Doug liked to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one thing about that, you know, it had a different impact on some players, Chris, because I was talking to Mark Waldy. He was more of an all around player. And after the specialization in the, the two pass receive uh, formation where Aldis was on the court more and Karch was on the court more, uh, Mark Waldy was on the court less. Yeah. And, and he told me, I think it's in the book, he said something along the lines of, you know, it was, was hard for me personally, but I eventually realized it was the right thing for the team. And I think that's something special about where the team was at that point towards the your journey towards the olympics that there was a lot of trust that you could try something sort of radical like this and and doug you said it a quote to me i'll never forget you said we weren't afraid to look foolish so you had the, the coaching staff had the courage to try something the players were there also trying and then some of the players had to take you know less time on the court or they did they played a different role and they had to realize well the, t the team was better because of it and i think that was a great lesson we're uh we've kind of teased it a little bit and we're getting into a little bit of spoiler territory here for the audience but the outward bound trip um doug for you could you explain a little bit your thoughts behind that in the moment why the team this team needed to go on that trip yeah um I probably do this differently every time I, I talk about this trip. Um, 
so volleyball in our country was in a different place than it is today. I think that's the starting point. For me, at least, um, not nearly as popular, widespread. There were more pockets, and we, you know, we had a, a few players from the Midwest, and most of the rest of the players were from the, the West Coast. And I think there were two dynamics that were working that um, got my attention. I, I would say troubled me greatly, but I'll, I'd rather say got my attention. Um, you know, one is this little clickishness between players that had played collegiately at UCLA, USC, Pepperdine, whatever, Stanford, and the players that come from Ohio State, Ball State, Penn State, or whatever. Um, and then actually, there was even some, uh, I don't know, some division between the UCLA guys and the, and the SC guys. And, you know, so we don't have too many colleges in this country that are playing men's volleyball at this wonderfully high level. We have more, thankfully, today, and it's not the same world at all. So we, we thought, gosh, if there's something we could do uh, that is that, that gets the group out of the, the comfort zone that they're in. So, you know, it can't be volleyball related, probably can't even be sport related. It's just got to be we got to be out of Southern California. We got to do something. And um, and I'm sure I'm sure Don, you know, Sean, Sean's dad and Chuck Johnson talked about it. And I think Chris was making jokes earlier with me about it. I think Neville bought into it like crazy. Uh, and, and we had to probably sell Tony on it. Um but we looked at a bunch of different things, and um, and I don't know if you could even do this today. You know, you'd probably, you know, if you were in college, no athletic director would approve it. You'd say you're out of your mind. Um, so anyway, we looked at a couple of things. I, I think Sean talks about it in the book a couple of times. But we wound up uh, working a, a, an arrangement with this outward bound group, which is a really uh, professional, well done outdoors sort of survivalist. It's really not, that's not really the way they want to describe it. Um, organization that grew out of um, World War II and uh, it came from uh, Great Britain. Um, and they have programs all over the country anyway. So we talked to him about it. And, it, you know, one thing led to another. And uh, I, I, again, I was telling Sean and Chris. They they saw this as a way to expand their business. You, we're going to have a sports team here, you know, that is going to be in the Olympics, and so that you know was attractive to them. Um, and we we thought this is great because this is about as far from volleyball as you can get. I guess I mean, maybe you could go further, but that would be uh, even I wouldn't go that far. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, we had a break in the schedule, sort of, uh, and we spent, uh, what, about three weeks uh, in the winter. So that was uh, pretty, pretty different for most of the, the players from Southern California. And, uh, and we hiked and we did a lot of things. And uh, one of the I, 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 I have to tell this story because I think it's, it's for me, one of the most impactful things. Every team develops this hierarchy. You know, who's the best player? Who's the best hitter? Who's the best setter? Who's whatever it is in basketball? Who's the best shooter? And and so the, you know, the, your um, your power in the team generally comes from your ability to play the game. 
But there's so much more that goes into being a great team. So you get out of that environment, you get players, you know, get the team members to perform in tasks that they're really are just completely different. And all of a sudden the ranking changes and they start seeing each other in different ways. So Craig Buck, who's, you know, seriously injured a couple more than a couple of years ago now, but was a really good player, but not a very impactful player in the gym. Pretty quiet, shy, or I don't know, whatever. All of a sudden, uh, on the outward bound, shows some skills that uh, you know are surprising. And you know, rock climb. This is a six nine guy, um, biggest guy on the team, and he's scrambling up you know hillsides and and he's belaying people and he's he's demonstrating skills that all of a sudden move him up in that environment that can carry over back into the volleyball environment and so his role and his confidence and his relationship to the players changes in a positive way in my view chris may you know, want to debate that a little, which would be fine. Um, But, but I think that's one of the things that we were hoping to come out of it. And, you know, why are you doing this? Why why are you committing all these hours because I said so, or because you think you're going to get a gold medal or, you know, why are you doing that? You like to fulfill something inside of you. And so we, we did a solo, we did a lot of, you know, campfire stuff, but, but we did some really hard things physically Chris will maybe not remember this as well as some others, but, you know, back in that day, um, snowshoes were made out of gut and, uh, and wood, not made for guys with 14, 15, 16 size shoes. Today, they're all what high tech metal and, you know, they don't break. We broke a lot of them and, uh, it was, it was a pain in the ass. I mean, to get through the you know, you're post-holing up to your waist in snow and you're supposed to be on top of the snow because that's what they tell me. That's what snowshoes do. Well, they didn't work so well. (laughs) Anyway, we had just a lot of stuff like that. And uh, yeah, did it make the difference? God, nobody could possibly ever know the answer to that. But I don't think it hurt us. Fingers were numb for like a month or something, but I I was a little worried about that. So. I would I would say for a couple of things from a, from my standpoint, player standpoint. Uh, first of all, we had heard Bill Neville was was the assistant coach for Doug uh, on the Olympic team, and we had heard that that he had come up with this because the Japanese uh, volleyball team in 1972, which ended up winning the gold medal, they had asked their players to do a task. They wanted to do a task. You have to do this or you can't be on the volleyball team. And their task was walking on their hands the length of a basketball court and back. You had to perform that task, which is quite challenging if you've ever tried anything like that. And so three weeks, three weeks, especially for a volleyball. Yeah. Three weeks before the Olympics. uh, I couldn't. I I can't even do a handstand. Uh, But. Three weeks before the Olympics, their number one hitter, Seijay Oko, had not done it. And they were worried that he wasn't going to do it. And he had a couple of days left. And then finally, as Doug kind of relayed to me tonight, he made it uh, with a little help from his friends. <laughs> I don't know, like three guys holding him upside down, walking him down there. We got to have this guy. Uh, and so uh, 
that that's one thing that struck me. The other thing that struck me too is that uh, there there was a lot of complaints about it, and I I was in on it, uh, not not as vociferously as as some of the other players, but I remember a lot of players saying, well, "Why do we have to go to Utah in the middle of winter? I mean, it's like twenty thirty degrees, or hiking seventy pound packs. Why can't we go to Maui and have an experience? Uh, why can't we go to uh, Puerto Vallarta and 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 uh, Dusty Dvorak, who was uh, one of the alphas on the team?" The, the best setter in the world. Uh, he came up with all these things. Let's go to Thailand. You know, he, he wanted to go anywhere but Utah. And so, uh, you know, it was uh, as, as physically challenging as you, you can imagine. Nine guys or ten guys from Southern California and four guys from back east. And, uh, you know, hiking really – 10 miles a day. We hiked an 11,000 foot mountain uh, and it was dangerous. It was dangerous. There were crevasses and there were slips and slides and coach took a header one time and uh, everybody rushed to pick him up. Not really. Not really. <laughs> Not really. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, looking back on it, you can say, well, yes, this made a big difference because we won the gold medal. But if we hadn't won the gold medal, uh, I don't know if we'd look back on it as affectionately as we do. And you can easily say, yeah, we bonded and yeah. and we certainly got a lot out of it. I ate a lot of cans of tuna and stuff like that. But uh, uh, it was quite the experience, I would say. So, uh, Chris, you kind of talk about, in, in you know, you weren't as willing as everybody else, but, you know, you were one of the more willing to, you know, kind of go through this with the team and, you know, you being the captain and such. Um what did that experience specifically do to that team in that moment going into that? Are you talking about the outward bound? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I wasn't captain at that time. I was not captain at that time. I didn't get to be captain until later. But, uh, you know, I, I think it, it it formed some groups of, of trust. Uh, uh, I, I tell this interesting. Well, I, you'll you'll see if it's interesting. So we're on outward bound and we're supposed to there's five of us in the last pod of guys. And Doug arranged this. I know he put in the guys that didn't like each other. It was Craig <laughs> Buck and Dusty Dvorak. And then I was in there as a referee. And then we had Mike Blanchard, who was like one of the great guys on the team and one other guy. And so we're supposed to hike 10 miles and then go into uh, a crevasse and and do this uh, kind of repelling. You had to kind of slip through there, and it's really dangerous. One of the toughest tests on outward bound, and we missed the cutoff. And we walked down into this wash, and then we got halfway down the wash, and we we looked and we go, oh my god, we missed we missed the turnoff for that incredibly tough task, and and uh, and everybody said, well, should we go back? And everybody said. No. We're not. No, we're not going back. We we found out that that wash took us right to where we were supposed to be, <laughs> and so we trundled down there, and we knew we were going to catch hell for it. And uh, the the guides who were not far behind us, uh, they came into the camp, and we had we had already discussed it. So the, the five of us discussed it. Do you want to go back or not? And they nobody wanted to go back and do that. So we got down to the to the camp. We're sitting there, and we nominated Mike Blanchard, who was the most believable guy on the team, to tell the guides why we didn't do that. And we made a team decision. Uh, we got together. We voted. The five of us. That's what this whole thing is about. And like it or lump it, we're not going back. And so the guides were really mad. And uh, I, I just tell that story because uh, 
that's the one thing that makes me chuckle about Howard Bound, that we were able to make a decision. And, and, and Dusty and Buck, who were at odds, and they were like two of our most important players. And, you know, they were setter, hitter, big, big hitter, great setter. And uh, they got together. Yeah, this is a great idea. And it just, I don't know, it was just a little bond we had between our five guys. And then the next day, the guides came down again and they said, hey, we're, we're going to go back up there and do that thing. Do you guys want to? You want to go do it. And eventually we said, no, we don't want to go do it. We're not going to do it. So, uh, yeah, that was the end of that. But uh, a, an interesting time. I want to say one thing about what, from my perspective, doing the research, I was really fortunate that there were a couple instructors by the way they refer to themselves as instructors not guides guides yeah yep. and that, that was kind of important was something i i kept referring to, the, to them as guides and yep. and i when i would talk to peter o'neill who was the main instructor he said you know we were really the part part of the kind of purpose of outward bound is to teach the participants and the experience to learn how to do this stuff on their own and so they really felt like them that they were instructors but one instructor named named um Randy Udall wrote an incredible report about the the trip that you went on, and it was uh, it's Peter O'Neill also wrote a report. Two of the instructors wrote a report, and one thing they it, it emphasized in the report was they wanted these players to empathize with each other and sort of take care of each other. That was that was a that was part of the design, and they described how you'd get to a camp, someone had to set up the tent. Someone had to clear the snow. Someone had to start cooking the food. Someone had to gather the firewood. And then the next day, put the camp back into your backpacks and someone would be breaking trail. And what they described in their observations was that the act of doing that for caring for each other, because to survive out there, they really did have to work together. And I think, you know, my theory is that that had an impact too, that some, that, that act of working together ended up building trust, which I think the team benefited from down downstream. I'm glad you went into that because I was going to ask in your, yeah, in your professional opinion and, and doing the research, how you felt about that uh, experience and what do you think yeah. they took away from that? So I'm glad you it, dived into It's that. easy to have a professional opinion when you don't have to go on that trip <laughs> right. and experience it, right, right Chris? <laughs> but <Yes>. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, why were you so adamant on 21 days. I know uh, your father was pushing for a shorter trip, um, maybe five days. I, or initially, I think it was four weeks and you compromised with 21 days. But why are you so adamant on that length of time? You know, one of the interesting things about the whole experience of Sean writing the book is uh, he would send me chapter by chapter and uh, and I, I kept, uh, you know, I'd, I'd read it. Yeah. He was meticulous about accuracy, which I, I really respected and thought was great and i kept saying to him i don't remember it this way maybe you know did that really happen did we really anyway that happened <laughs> a thousand times so um i i don't i don't remember any of that part about uh how long um i i i guess we had some conversations about you know a week wouldn't be impactful enough Four weeks is a joke, you know. I, I don't know that we're not going to go out there and kill people. And uh, I mean, I, I remember flying back. I think I went to a board. I think I went to a U.S. volleyball board meeting directly from the trip. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was not pleasant. <laughs> I mean, the board meeting was the horrible thing. Um, you got a, I hope you got a shower. Before and that. Uh, 
probably not. No, but we had, I mean, I had, uh, what is, what is it? Uh, it's not frostbite. It's frost, frost nip. nip. Yeah, it's yeah. frost nip. I mean, I had lost uh, feeling in my fingers. I, I was um, I was going, oh, my God, am I in trouble here? I mean, you know, I, I kept asking Dusty, can you feel your hands? Can you feel your hands? Anyway. I don't remember anything else about it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Our bound said that they the reason was they felt the three weeks were required because if it was yeah. just five days or even fourteen days. The discussions that they wanted to have around the campfire, around the the solo experience, some of the sort of epiphanies or the connections, the things Chris is talking about with mm-hmm. with Buck and Dusty, and that those don't happen on the first day or the second day or the first week. And it, in the report, it does say later on that's when some of those breakthroughs happen. And so they really pushed hard for 21 days. And you know the players were trying to get it down to 14 or 10 or five. Uh, they settled on 21, you know, Howard Bound wanted 28. They ended up at 21. Yeah. To truly immerse into it. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I sort of remember some of those conversations and we're, we're talking almost 40 years. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you touched briefly on, you know, preparing for the Soviet Union and you guys were ready. You uh, had specific drills for the Soviet Union, just three three months before the Olympics uh, you had several matches against them as well in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and that's when you found out that Soviet Union would be boycotting the 1984 Olympics. Um, what did that, what did that do to both squads? Uh, and, and one of the things that I found interesting that I didn't know about was how close the two squads were uh, all the way up to the coaching staff as well. Yeah. But what did it, what did that do to both squads? Mm, you know, so, uh, an off-topic, uh, but but most relevant uh, issue right now. So that series of matches was at the time in the Soviet Union. It was in Ukraine, Kharkov, the city that's in the news here. So it's a fascinating place, um, and we were there uh, in May. I remember middle of May, something like that. I think um, there's a huge memorial in that city. World War II Memorial. There had been a, a major battle and absurd loss of life. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting considering what's going on in Ukraine right now. Anyway, um, yeah, the the two teams were really close, um, which is a wonderful part, I think, of international sport, actually. Um, and... Um, they invited us to to come over for some uh, so-called friendly matches, and uh, this is a team that we um, we we sort of geared a lot of of how we wanted to play the game. Uh, they were uh, world champion, defending world champion, defending Olympic champion, defending World Cup champion, defending everything champion uh, at that point, and I think. Every coach will tell you the same thing. You want to be the best. You got to play the best. You got to beat the best. Um, so, um, yeah, we felt pretty good about going in there. And um, uh, they uh, announced the boycott publicly after the first match. We, we win the first match in five sets. Um, I give... I give that coach who's long passed away there, really good friend of mine, um, helped us in many ways, um, a lot of credit because they played the rest of that series knowing that they were not going to be going to the Olympic Games. 
Um, we won all the matches. Uh, you know, I can't really tell you how meaningful it was, but the two teams were pretty competitive. Um, I think I think they were important. They were incredibly important to us because it uh, justified, verified, you know, our moving up into the ranks of that elite uh, level. We had spent an awful lot of time preparing for not just the Soviet Union at the time or Russia, but Poland and um, and Cuba, I think, were the key teams that, that boycotted. Um, yeah, it was awfully disappointing. We had a barbecue, a Soviet barbecue. It wasn't much of a barbecue, uh, but a lot of caviar and probably a lot more vodka. Yep. Um, but, you know, it's a special, uh, I don't know, that's a special part of, of international sport, I think. Um, getting really close to people from all over the world and just, I don't know, verifying something that, of course, we should all know that people are, are just incredibly similar, have the same, you know, fears and loves and hates and frustrations and whatever. Um, uh, the barbecue was just fantastic. We were commiserating with them. They were commiserating with us about the, this boycott. You got to put it in context. The 80 Olympics had been boycotted by a ton of Western countries. People don't remember as much, but the 76 games had been boycotted by a, a bunch of African countries. Um, the Olympics were in real disarray during that period of time. Um, just sadly politicized. And you hear all the time oh, from the IOC, which is really sad. I think <clears throat> they they sort of manipulate the words. It's just one of the most politicized organizations that there is. And that's just the world we live in. And I don't know how you could avoid it. Um, but the 84 games, the success of those games and the couple of Eastern Bloc countries who did uh, attend in spite of the pressure put on them by the Soviet Union, most people think saved the Olympics and changed the whole dynamics of the of the size of that event. It, it's unbelievable. I think it'll happen again, honestly, in uh, 2028. Uh, again, we're we're getting a little off track, but I think that's that's a special thing, and our, our relationship, the, the U.S. team with the Soviet team, just got warmer and better. Uh, we had invited them to our country repeatedly. They had played in the United States a lot up leading up to the 84 games that continued after that um, up through the Seoul games in 88. Uh, in 88. So uh, it's, it's pretty special. And it was really hurtful, I think, to both teams that, um, that there was a boycott. I think it's always hurtful for the athletes. And that's just Everybody knows that, and, and it still gets discussed, and it's pretty disappointing. Yeah, Chris. Speaking of the athletes, I have I have very fond memories of the the Soviet players and the Russian players. I Doug and I were on the team together in '76 when we 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 toured around the United States, and uh, 
And one of the stops was in Los Angeles and we took the Russians to Disneyland. And that had to be one of the most fun experiences of my life. I rode the Matterhorn with their middle blocker, Yefim Chulak, and he's behind me. And he was uh, this big bear of a guy and he was squeezing me so tightly. I thought my head was going to pop off when we went down that, that first drop. I also have another memory of, of, of a, a tour and I can't remember which tour it was. So I'm in my hotel room and I hear this knock on the door and I open it and it's uh, one of their players, Pavel Salavanov, a terrific player, number four. And he says, Chris, can I talk to you? I go, yeah, come on in. He comes in, he closes the door and, and I, I need to ask you something. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to defect. <laughs> this guy's going to defect right in my room and I'm going to be caught in this thing. And he goes, I, I go, Pavel, what, what, what's up? And he goes, can you help me get a salami slicer for my wife? <laughs> can you take me to the Walmart? <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is, this is just too much. Uh, but they were, they were just terrific guys. I, I, I communicated with him maybe four or five years ago. He's still going, he's still, or at least he was then. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was funny. I still remember all their names. You could see all their guys. Uh, their setter son is now an international star. So he keeps playing, uh, and it's 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 kind of a crying shame that they can't figure it out where everybody can come and everybody can play, and not have the politics enter it. It's a pretty um, impactful adjustment there. How do you stay locked in, or how did you stay locked in mentally as a team? You know, from a player's perspective, from a, a coaching standpoint, how did you just keep the focus? You mean after the boycott was announced? Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, um, I think there was a, this little dip. I mean, those matches, we had been preparing for those matches, uh, I, I don't know, probably as seriously or more seriously than we did for the actual Olympic Games that followed a couple of months later. Um, again, I think you got to put it in context. Clarence, the first time we're going to go to the Olympics, we're going to be playing in, in the hometown of the majority of our team. Um, you know, huge event for USA volleyball for the sport of volleyball um, I think it really wasn't that hard um, I, I, you just I don't know I, I think the guys were pretty good at um, uh, ignoring the stuff you can't control and, and focusing on the stuff you can control uh, we did a, a pre-camp um, a pre-Olympic camp up in Pullman Washington which I I also thought was really um significant for the preparation of that team um that's that's harder to do today because of the um of the volume of competition that the teams play in uh, but back in those days there wasn't uh the proliferation of the professional leagues and players all playing overseas and and, and doing really well and so we had the opportunity to go up there and and do something that i think helped us a great deal we we could exactly mirror the number of days, the schedule on those days, uh, have inter-squad matches, invite fans in. It, 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 it proved, I think, again, it proved to be uh, pretty helpful and a super competitive group of players. And, uh, you know, we, we had to dial things back, I think, a couple of times. And you hear the I think lots of coaches and lots of sports have that experience where you want to be careful about 
you know, players get into fights and we just read about one in basketball, I think. And you just, you, you know, you, you want players really eager to play. You don't want them killing each other to do it. Um, and so I, I think we did an okay job of that. You know, if I had to do it over again, we might change a few things, be, but that was really important. So it wasn't hard to get the team really excited to, to play. I, I tell this story all the time. Um, the first match, the first match of, uh, of the Olympics were playing Argentina. Um, f- first of all, I put the wrong lineup in. Yep. <laughs> so I screw up the lineup. First match in the Olympic Games, first set, I put the wrong lineup in. Pretty under control coach. Um, but I have to sub Timmons out because he's hyperventilating. So it was not hard to get the guys excited. I mean, he was he was breathing in a bag on the on the bench, you know. Wow. I mean, I'd never seen that. You know, what, what the hell? The doctor says, yeah, he's going to pass out if he anyway. So, yeah, it, I think I don't know. You know, we were a good team um, and, the, and the team kept getting better and uh, obviously excited to be playing in our hometown and playing in the Olympics. And uh, it was unbelievably special and every Olympics is they are unbelievably special it's hard to overstate that I think Uh, for Chris um, Sean ended up using a lot of your uh, diary uh, entries uh, which I think was critical to the story that you wanted to tell like you mentioned earlier Um, what were some of the moments for you throughout the journey as one of the players that stood out um, that you, you know, maybe when you reunite with Doug here or, or uh, any of your teammates, uh, stories that always come up. Yeah, well, uh, to, <laughs> to detail all of it, Doug and I have been down a long and winding road. Yeah. Uh, I would say at the Olympics, I remember that first match also. Uh, I was a substitute and I was playing as a back row substitute. And I was just... I don't know if I was hyperventilating, but they had the where, where you uh, where you were was the bullpen. And it was it was like 50 feet down. It wasn't like you're on the bench. You're in the warm up bullpen. And and, uh, you know, Doug calls for me and I've you've got these uh, and I run down and they give you a paddle. They give you a paddle with the, uh, the the guy you're replacing his number. So I'm going in for Craig Buck and I'm I'm going, OK, let's get out there. And the paddle snaps in the head of the, the seven <laughs> flies up and, and drops it in there. And uh, uh, that was all I remember about that entire match until they said, we want a drug test. Uh, number 10. <laughs> he, he seems a little bit overamped. And uh, so I actually got drug tested the first two matches. I don't know if you remember no, that, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, you know, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, I was able to have my mom and all my family show up. Uh, all my friends, uh, you know, girlfriend at the time and uh, to to be in that arena and playing in front of your home crowd, it definitely gave us a big advantage. Uh, one, one of the other advantages that I thought was crucial and not in a cheating kind of a way, but when when USA plays Brazil, USA and Brazilian uh, officials do not ref. You have a Chinese official and a you know, maybe Argentina or something like that. But all four linesmen were from the United States, the host country. And more than one time, I always kept thinking, well, close play. 
It's in <laughs> for the United States or a big hit. Oh, it's out. Too bad. I don't think they necessarily cheated or, or tried to do something like that. But I always thought, you know, it's just it, it felt like you had a lot of people on your side, a lot of people pulling for you. Uh, telegrams, uh, just every everything, everything pointed to us winning that gold medal and going all the way. And, and we did. You know, uh, Sean, so. In your professional opinion, in your work with real-time performance, what can what can we all learn? You know, us interviewers and us in the audience here learn from that 1984 team. Well, there's a lot of lessons, and that's one of the great you know benefits of writing the book was just being able to sit back and and pull some of these lessons out, you know, and look at what did they do to uh, to get there? I'll just mention a couple. I mean, one is Doug Beal's leadership. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I thought I was going to write a book about how this team came together. And I realized a big part of that was the leadership. And, and, and so, you know, Doug was solving a lot of problems that weren't necessarily on the volleyball court, you know, trying to find jobs for the players so that they could practice four hours a day. They still had to work four hours a day. So he started this Olympic jobs program actually back in Dayton, but brought that to San Diego, uh, fundraising, you know, getting enough matches scheduled, you know, getting the, uh, developing a logo. We got, um, you, we got, uh, let's see who, who was the uh, spokesperson for Magnum PI? Tom Selleck. Uh, yeah, Tom Selleck. Yeah. Tom Selleck was, became the, the, you know, so there was a lot of things that Doug did to kind of build the resources of the team and solve these problems. Uh, and then there was a lot of things that, you know, had to do with the team and, and Doug sort of alluded to one of them, which was he asked for a certain level of commitment to the team. And I think on any great team, eventually, the players have to be committed to the team. And, and Doug set a very high bar for asking players, you know, well, at one point he said, you're not going to play. You can't play on the beach and play on this team. And that was hard for some of the players. Karch in particular, uh, there was a really good player named Tim Hovland who was having a lot of success on the beach. And he also said, look, you can't go play in Europe and play on this team. There were, there were players that, had opportunities to play in Europe. Paul Sunderland, for example, had to turn down a contract. Other players like Tim Hovland eventually left and went to play in Europe and didn't end up making it on the team. And And so I, I think committing to the team, putting the success of the team above the individual was another one. And if I had to mention a third, I'd mention Karch. We haven't mentioned his name a lot tonight, but everyone I interviewed, all the players eventually... At some point in the interview, Karch would come up and it would usually come up in some context of he made us better. He went out there every day and kind of set the bar. He had a very, very high expectations for himself and his performance at every practice. And he de sort of demanded it of others or he lifted everyone else's expectations of their own performance in the team. Um, I don't know, Chris, maybe you could speak to that, but I, in, in studying other teams, it seems if you, you get to a, a championship team like this, there tends to be a player like that, 
that the leadership sort of comes from the players too. Um, I mean, I could go on. I think there's a lot of lessons and in, in any team and any organization, there's going, you, you can't just take the lessons from this team and apply them to your team and expect to, to go out and win your own gold medal. You got to kind of figure out what's, what's the, the, the right mix for, for your team. But I, you, we can certainly learn a lot from them and, and apply what we can to, to any team. I don't know. Do you guys have any others that you want to add? Well, I think your first one was really the, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a hundred of them. Yeah. I, I would say that uh, I've always thought of the 84 team as kind of a special group of guys that came, came along at just the right time. We, we had just tremendous talent. Uh, you know, we had a big man in Craig Buck and we had ascending talent and in, in Dusty and, and, and uh, Timmons. And, and we had Karch. And when things started out, when Doug changed the, the scheme on how we we're going to do things, it was because we lost uh, a, a match in, in, in uh, Argentina to Bulgaria, who was a really good team at the time. And we, we really outplayed them. And we had them at 13 to five in the, in the fifth set to 15. We just choked. We just totally gagged and we, we were not together. Karch wasn't on that trip trip, but the rest of us were. And uh, they, boy, they hated us down there. It was terrible. They're throwing things at us. They thought we were involved in the Falklands War. It was a it was a nightmare. So when we got back and Doug started change things around, you could see that 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 this team had had that special group. And in defense of Doug, I, I hear people always say, well, why didn't you get Hovland on the team? He was easily one of the great players in the country. Uh, and would he have made our team better? Maybe physically. But uh, uh, I, I think Doug did everything you could possibly do to get him back on the team. And uh, the final straw was when Doug said, look, you have to be here tomorrow or it's not going to work. And Hovland says, my grandfather died. Said, no, wait, wait, wait. Your grandfather already died twice. You, you've already had two grandfathers die, and and you you have to come tomorrow, or you you can't be on the team. Is that basically that? Tim Hovland? Oh yeah, yeah, Tim Hovland. So uh, I think Doug, you know, Karch was able to sacrifice uh, and and put his beach career on hold, and he did a great job of that. But Sinjin and and Mike Dodd, who might have made the team, and and Tim Hovland, they couldn't do that. And they were making a lot of money, and they went on to have great success. But they didn't get an Olympic gold medal in indoor volleyball. Uh, they got they got some medals later, but uh, uh, that was a that was a fun group. And I always think that that was why it was special because it was the start. It was it was the start. The men, the USA men had never been really very good. And then to ascend to number one in the world and win the gold medal uh, was quite the feat. And speaking of um, Karch staying on that just a little bit, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just the the emotions you both had, Doug and Chris, uh, watching the U.S. women's team win their first Olympic gold medal for their program. Um, obviously you guys doing it for the men, uh, back in 1984, but yeah, what are, what thoughts do you have on that? What emotions do you have? How did that change or how does that, you know, change the game, elevate the game today? Go ahead. <laughs> you, you go first and then I'll go. I got a good story. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, what do I, how do I want to say this? Um, Karch was a phenomenally good player. Everybody knows that. I, I think I think he was a better beach player than indoor even. And the reason I say that is because uh, I don't think anybody's ever had the success of winning with so many different partners. 
And so he has this trait of elevating the players around him in a, in a really unique way that's hard to, um, it's hard to stat. It's hard to define in a really specific way. I think he's a better coach than he was a player. Um, he's, uh, I don't know, he's been able to modify his personality to fit the, the role that he's in versus this very dramatic, demonstrative um, personality that he had as a player. Um, you know, very loud, very in your face, very demanding. And occasionally you see that, but he he's been able to figure out how to get the most out of players with changes that he's made. Um, you know, I've been around a lot of great coaches, I think, and um, he may be the best of the ones that I've interacted with. And it's a pretty impressive list, I think. So to see, I, I was certainly not in Tokyo, which uh, it was unfortunate. I think it would have been great to see that live. Um, and, and I guess the other thing that's so impressive to me, I, I was going to say, but I was uh, in Italy when uh, Karch's team won the world championships in, uh, what was it, 2014, I think. Yeah, I think that um, we've had this enormous population of women playing volleyball in this country in the NCA structure, and we haven't somehow been able to just get over that hump. And and a lot of times we say, and, and I think there's some accuracy to this, that we're playing a different game with the subbing rules, essentially, you know, mitigating against the sort of six rotation outside hitter particularly he's figured that out and the the rule hasn't changed we still have that limitation um i, I just I, I can't say enough about him as a coach employee etc and i i just want to add one thing because because uh, i'm on a roll now um no <laughs> he gets i think a ton of credit that he richly deserves. Um, but Chris said it really well, I think. It, it was a very special group of players in 84. And Karch was by no means the most competitive. He was among the most competitive. I, I, I've always, I always thought Dusty was the most competitive we had. I mean, it would drive him crazy to lose, you know, a warm-up sprint. And, and I, I mean, he he used to drive me crazy as a coach because we'd structure a drill that was designed to work on a certain part of the game. He would figure out how to be more successful in the drill than we had figured out when we were designing it. And it would, you know, work on a whole nother part of the system, whatever. But he'd win. And, I, you know, I, and I think Timmons was like that. I think Chris was like that. I think... We had Saunders was like that. I think Steve Sammons was like that. It was on and on this incredibly competitive group of talented athletes. And we had to figure out just a little bit how to stay out of their way, put them in a situation where they played a lot and sort of enhance that competition to achieve a, a way we wanted them to play. Uh, anyway, 
yeah, Karch is pretty special, and you know, USA Volleyball is incredibly fortunate that he's around. I think it was a it was a tremendous accomplishment, and you know, the women's world is just, God, it, it's that the the women's volleyball world has changed in my view so much more than the men's. Um, more physical, more uh, athletic. Uh, I mean, faster. Just the change in the kinds of athletes that are out there and the speed of the game. It's just, it's a men's has changed uh, obviously a lot too, but I think the women's more. Well, Karch is one of my best friends. I was in his wedding. He was at my wedding and I had one of the most interesting experiences in Tokyo. So I was over there to call uh, Olympic beach volleyball and the beach volleyball wrapped up on Saturday. And so they scheduled us to fly out on Sunday afternoon, evening. And, uh, the, the USA women weren't playing until later that day. So I got to the Tokyo airport. I bought some hats and some souvenirs and I'm sitting there and I actually called my daughter who's here tonight, Grace Marlowe in the back. And uh, I called her and I was talking to her. We're on the phone and she says, are you watching the match? I go, no, I'm in the Tokyo airport. There's no TVs, you know, nobody, you know, half the people don't speak English. And so for the next how long, hour and a half, maybe we're on the phone and my daughter is doing play by play of the USA. <laughs> nice. They're up, what's the score? <laughs> well, it's 14 to 13. And it was it was as good as being there. I felt just total joy uh, for Karch and and his and his team. Uh, to, when you when you end up. He had disappointment before when they lost to Brazil and then you go into the Olympic final and you beat that team and you finally get that job done. And then he, he goes nuts in the interview and he's, I'm going, wow, this, look at, look at him. He's going crazy. And, and he was because he was just so happy. And, uh, you know, I found out later that he'd had a battle with cancer that he had not revealed. Uh, and it was just kind of a culmination for him. I think he did a fantastic job with that team. Uh, Doug's right. He's, he's, he's a terrific coach. He, I used to call him up when my daughter was playing volleyball and ask him, well, how do you block the slide? What do you do with the slide? And he was telling me, okay, keep your hands up, shuffle out to the outside, dive back in, you know, is, and so uh, my coach, uh, the Arapaho coach always got a big kick out of say, hey, we got a couple plays from Karch today uh, <laughs> that were that were going to work in against Grandview Maybe or whatever. Maybe you should use those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to try this out and see how it works. Uh, remember, the platform only knows, the ball only knows where the platform is facing. Remember that. So uh, very happy for Karch. He he was kind of the linchpin of the deal. Uh, at In 84, he was tw- 22. Uh, he was just ascending. Uh whether he was the best player in the world at that time, maybe not. But in '88, he clearly was. And after that, you know, he 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 go he goes down as one of the greatest all around players in volleyball history. You know, I think just a, a quick other thing. He talked as coach of the U.S. women quite a lot about we've never won an Olympic medal, we the Olympic gold medal. I mean, doing that means you're not afraid to fail, to not do it. And I, I, th- I thought that was really interesting because very, very rarely do you talk about, we want to win the gold medal. It's, it's hard to pinpoint this one accomplishment, this one spot, when most of the time you want to talk about the, the process, the trajectory, something like that, that's less threatening to you and, and your team. He, he was fine with that. So. Pretty impressive, I thought. 
I uh, I know we're going a little over time here with the uh, with the live interview. So um, just again, want to thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time and sharing your stories. You know, we can sit here and talk probably all night about this. If I'm being honest, too, Great but um, our audience is probably jumping up. They want to ask. Questions I know, too, right? So. <laughs> really quickly before we go into the audience Q and A, um, you know, in addition to here at Tattered Cover, Sean, where can people purchase the book? Yeah, support your independent bookstore. Tattered Cover would be a great spot. And uh, I, I definitely promote that. Um, and if you go to uh, realtimeperformance.com on my website, I've got uh, links to the book if you need to buy it in other places. Um, it's published by Roman and Littlefield. And uh, also very fortunate that they stepped up to, to publish this book. Um, it took a little convincing to take on this story and, um, you know, Hope there's a little interest in Hollywood, so hopefully down the road uh, we can we can get this story on the big screen, which I think would be great. Wonderful story, you know. People love the the Miracle movie, the yep. Miracle on Ice, and everyone knows that story, the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And you know, this is another American story that's right up there. And um, I hope I hope America sort of rediscovers it. And as we go up to towards 2028, the Olympics will be back in Los Angeles. Nine of the 12 players were from Los Angeles or the greater Los Angeles area. And it's going to be a great homecoming for that team. And, and I, I hope it's uh, celebrated at, at that time. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. I, I know you, you had this event already set up with, with Doug and Chris and you invited us. So let, yeah, we're just crashing your party. Yeah. You know, thank, thank, thank you for, for letting us crash the event. Um, uh, right now, we'll just jump into audience Q&A um, for, for any of our three guests here, um, for anyone who wants to jump in first. BJ? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Hi. <laughs> Sean, were you familiar with Doug Beale's book, Spike? And did you read it and refer to it when writing your book? Uh, absolutely. In fact, you know, <laughs> if you look at the notes in my book, one of the things that my publisher required me to do is every time I quoted anyone in the book, any player, anyone, I had to do like reference where that quote came from. And a lot of the quotes came from my interviews. Some of them came from, you know, various archives, but a, a, quite a few also came from Spike. I, when I discovered Spike, I didn't know about Spike. Uh, apparently, my dad had a copy buried somewhere in our basement. Doug had a couple hundred copies in his basement, he said. Um, and uh, so... They make really yeah. good Christmas presents. And, uh, things. Yeah. So uh, you, you want it to be reprinted? Is that the deal? <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, Spike has all of the information in it. I mean, what Doug did is he detailed almost the score of almost every international, you know, major international uh, event at that time. And uh, no, it was a tremendous resource. All the players were were great about sitting for interviews. Most of them were over the phone and you know, and also Doug invited me to his house. You know, he's, Doug's got a reputation for not wanting to talk to the press, but for someone who doesn't want to talk to the press, he had a lot, there was a lot of press written about this team and there was a lot of uh, articles. So I don't, I don't know how that happened. That was just uh, irony there, Doug or what, but uh, anyway, he opened up the archives and uh, there was a, there's a, there was a lot written about this team. If you go back and look, it really did have a big impact. I think it had the highest ratings at the 1984 Olympics. And, and that's saying something because the 84 basketball team was pretty popular, had Michael Jordan on it. But there was something about this team. It kind of caught the whole spirit of the country. And um, 
you know, they, a, lot, a lot was written about it. It was good. Uh, what success do you give to the fact that you took the practices, once you found out your schedule, you took in space the practices going into the Olympics and played the morning practice when you had a morning game at the Olympics. Your next game you'd practice at the same time. So the, the physical life cycle mm-hmm. uh, that the bodies were going through were similar every time they went to a game. I don't know if you've discussed this, but I felt there was a lot of success that went to that. Uh, and later on, I told Dan Reeves they can't win footballs and uh, football games in New York because they leave here, play afternoon games, and they go play morning in New York. He started practicing at 10 in the morning here in, yeah. here in Denver. Yeah, I, I, I did mention it, uh, Gil. We, we were talking about the, um, uh, what, the couple of weeks that we were up in Pullman where we we just tried to mirror the the schedule of the games. Yeah, the the thing that we could talk about forever is the Olympics is this very unique unique meaning no other competition is like it. So you rarely are in a village with all the other athletes. You, you know, you're rarely having to bus and all the transportation and all the security and all all the other issues that you deal with. Um and so it's impossible to sort of exactly uh, mirror it, but you do what you can. And I thought we did a pretty good job up in Pullman uh, before that. And I think the next, maybe the next two games, they were able to do something like that. But then I think the calendar has just mitigated any ability to do that. And uh, athletes are playing, you know, the, the volleyball players are playing so many more matches. Now they go back and forth between their pro team and the national team. Those that are playing, it's uh, pretty challenging, I think, but we, we did a lot of that. And, and I think, success. yeah, I think it was, I think, you know, I I'm going to say, metal. I'm going to say everything. I think everything we did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> hey, Chris, this is something I always wanted to ask you. You know, age is a relative thing. And, of course, in the real world, it doesn't necessarily make any difference. But Karch was the youngest guy. Didn't go on the trip to Utah because he was in college. He was such a great player. Did that automatically just have him accepted? Or did he have to prove more than other people? Was there resentment, any of that kind of stuff, you know, in the initial stages? Yeah, that was that was quite a surprise that Doug pulled on us. <laughs> Uh, uh, the coaching staff had said that everybody had to go on outward bound or you wouldn't be able to be on the team. And so everybody thought that everybody was going. So we got to the airport and we didn't find out that Karch was not going until that morning. Then we were flying away and some of the guys are really mad about it. Uh, I knew Karch pretty well, and I knew what kind of a schedule he has. And Doug can probably speak uh, a little bit more to this, why why he made that decision. But there was a lot of grumbling, and it's a it's a big chapter in the book. Where the hell is Karch? <laughs> Karch isn't here. Where'd he go? So maybe yeah. Doug can elaborate a little bit more on that. Uh, hey, Chris, uh, didn't you call it the march without Karch, right? March I might have said that, Karch. maybe. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Why well, did yeah, coach? Yeah, you're on. <laughs> <laughs> so there was only one window uh, at the time. Karch was really focused on I'm going to go to med school, and and as I say, there wasn't any pro volleyball uh, the way it is today. And and we made a decision if we're going to do this, uh, we're not happy about it. Uh, but that was the only option we thought we had. Um, 
Yeah. Chris and I, as I said, we, we remember things very differently. <laughs> uh, there are times I don't think it was just at the airport. It was probably a day or two before, but um, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. Well, most of us didn't find out yeah. until the day <laughs> yeah. at the airport. Yeah. See, these were some of the challenges I had trying to write this <laughs> yeah. book. Oh, yeah. There, there were lots of times I said, I don't remember it that way. <laughs> yeah, it, it would have been better. You know, uh, got another great story as I'm d- diverting everybody's attention from that. Um, so Sean's dad didn't go either. Uh, I, I don't think it was required. But one of the other the other psychologists did go on Outward Bound. And so we're... Uh, I don't know, the players are whatever, 22 to 28 or something like that. So he's 45 or something and a little guy. And um, he's supposed to carry the same pack as everybody else. Uh, It's kind of challenging. And uh, I remember Steve Sammons particularly, who was one of the most disorganized human beings at that point in his life of anybody I think I've ever had on a team or been around. But you would see, you could always tell where Salmon's was on the outward bound because whatever he was carrying wasn't in the pack, it was hanging off the pack. And he looked like, you know, I don't know, the flim flam man walking around, stuff is just flying off. But he, I don't know how many times, a lot, went up to Chuck, can I take, you know, this pack away or this pound, these pounds out of it. So it's, it's heavy. And um, I think there was a wheel of cheese at some point or, or a wedge yeah. of cheese. So <laughs> dehydrated food wasn't like the top seller, you know, on, on this. So we had a lot of uh, heavy food, you know, a lot of cheese, blocks of cheese. Yeah. Tuna. Yeah. And tuna. Tuna was okay. You know, little cans, not so heavy. I don't know, a five pound, you know, block of cheese. So we would eat blocks of cheese for lunch. We're going to get rid of that cheese so you don't have to carry it anymore (laughs) in day one. Yeah, we're getting into resupply halfway through and where's the cheese? We don't have cheese anymore or something anyway. So, but Steve, it was a great thing to see. So he's carrying things in his hands. Everybody else has got, you know, using your hands to walk. He's a super big, strong guy. Um, But he, I'll never forget several times specifically going up to Chuck and uh, who's, you know, half a mile behind everybody else. And uh, I I thought that was a great part of the trip too. We're uh, going to wrap this up for tattered cover, but uh, Chris, I'm going to have to ask the question. What were you thinking when you were holding that flag that's on the cover of that book right there? Well, that's a that's a good little story. Uh, 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 like a day before we were uh, supposed to go, we, we were staying at SC, but traveling down and staying at a hotel. And uh, the day before they had given everybody in the American contingent a 15 foot American flag. And uh, so uh, when we, we we drove down to Long Beach, I, I brought brought the flag with me and uh, I thought, well, if we win, if we win, maybe, maybe I can do something with this flag. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea. And uh, so the challenge was getting the flag onto the floor. 
uh, because they had a, a rule at the time that you couldn't take the players couldn't take anything out on the floor. You couldn't have a bag. You couldn't have. Uh, I can't even remember. If we were allowed to take the warm ups out there, but I was behind uh, Bill Neville. Uh, when we were starting to go out and I had the USA volleyball bag with a flag in there. And I said to Bill, I said, Hey, Nev, uh, can you carry this out for me? And he goes, what's in it? I go, just, it, can you just, can you just take it out? <laughs> and he, he gave me that look and he took it out there and it, he put it right under his chair. So uh, immediately when the, uh, when the last ball went down, I think Dusty blocked the last ball yeah. and went down and, and pandemonium on the court. We were all in the bullpen, the subs, and we all ran out there, and uh, we were celebrating and uh, and uh, jumping around. And then I I remembered, oh my God, I got the flag in the bag, and so I ran over uh, to where the coaches were, and the, the the stands were right there. And this guy goes, "Hey, Chris, take this flag. He's got this." You know, this dinky little flag. I go, no, 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 no. I got a 15-footer right here. <laughs> so I grabbed it up and I started running around. I know I said that on Twitter. What was I thinking? I was just thinking, I'm just delirious. I'm just going to run as long as I can. I remember Jim Craig was kind of draped in the flag in 1980. And uh, he was... Uh, I, I always just thought that was just a great representation. And luckily someone caught it on camera and they, they, they caught that picture that's on the book. And I'm always going to be grateful for Sean for putting that picture on the book. It's, it's, uh, my favorite picture of me all time. And, uh, I, I'm really proud of that. Yeah. It's iconic. It is. I think it was great. Of course, now you can take whatever you want out on the court. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, you can. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Any other questions? Yeah. yeah. We answered it all. Um, before, Yeah, before we uh, move on to the book signing, uh, Sean, any last words uh, to the audience here for our podcast listeners? Anything about the book or any stories, anything? Go out and buy it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you for being here and uh, yep. listening to the stories and you know, tell others about the book if you enjoyed it. It really does. Word of mouth does make a difference. Uh, you know, if I don't want to say the, the word Amazon here, but like if you do go rate there. Hey, hey Sean, <laughs> if this if you do get a movie offer, who's going to play Coach Doug Beal? That's what I want to yeah. know. <laughs> Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. Of course. <laughs> Great. All right. Thank awesome. you. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks. Clarence, what a night it was at the Tattered Cover on Saturday. I, I don't know about you. I was definitely a little nervous, uh, especially kind of leading up to it. We got there a little bit early at uh, a couple hours before, but I was uh, I was starting to feel it a little bit, uh, especially as the audience kind of started pouring in a little bit. Uh, when we got on the loudspeaker, uh, we were... Uh, we were on audio in the entire bookstore, <laughs> like yeah. on the overhead and, audio in the entire bookstore. And uh, to paint the scene cool. of, of the bookstore, um, it is a beautiful, beautiful oh, bookstore. Yes, definitely. And it is uh, two levels, two stories, and uh, just wide open for anybody to come in and view. So the fact that we were projecting through the entire store, <laughs> um, it's just something. Wow. Yeah. Candy. Yeah.
Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Still can't still can't find the words for it. I love that we had our, our shirts on too, our new oh, podcast shirts. Oh yes. We had the stickers out. Uh I think there was a young uh young volleyball player uh, who just happened to be in the bookstore and and Laura Fawcett yeah. was able to give her a sticker and she was just ecstatic about that. That was uh, such a cool moment. But yeah, just a, an awesome experience. I hope we get to do another live show here soon. But um the talk, getting to talk to Sean and and hear his thoughts, you know, as he was writing the book, um, the stories that he heard, um, and, and like you said, how he was able to, you know, construct the story uh, from all the other perspectives and and interviews and and diary excerpts that he had from from his research uh, as he began to write the book, but. Um, I personally loved hearing Doug Beal and Chris Marlowe talk about talk about the book, you know, their excitement um, and their reaction to to hearing that it was being written by Sean um, and just to hear some of their their stories and perspectives. Uh, it was it was funny to hear Doug say um, uh, when when he was talking to Sean uh, over the phone, when Sean was you know interviewing him and doing some research and he Sean would tell him a story that another athlete told him. And Doug would be like, yeah, I don't remember it that way. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to bring that up, too. That's hilarious. Yeah. But it's just the fact they're just able to sit down and, and reminisce on just literally everything. And 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 just this this was their miracle. That was their, you know, their their gold medal moment. The first one that really set the tone. And, you know, the team that went there and did it just total powerhouse. And like you said, Stephen, just to hear the perspectives of what they remembered and how they remembered it and who remembered it what way, who did remember what what way. It was, it's it's really, really cool too. And a lot of the a lot of some really interesting questions came from the audience there. Definitely, just like, yeah. you know, how Chris was able to uh run around with the 13 foot, I think he said American flag or I forgot the square footage of yeah. that flag. But yeah. um, you know, and it's it's crazy that that is the <laughs> the actual um cover page of the book and it means so much to to him and everybody else a part of that yeah it was funny uh he was able to sneak that flag in because the players weren't allowed to bring bags on the on the uh the court but there was an audience or a fan who had like a little handheld flag who was trying to give yes. it to him. He's like, no, 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 no. I, know, I, know, I got, I got, a, I got a better flag. I got a better flag. <laughs> no, that was so cool. And, and to hear him, you know, just what it meant, like you said, what it meant uh, to see his photo, that iconic photo um, on the cover of the book is just so cool. Um, and he was just smiling ear to ear uh, as he was looking at it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, thank you again, Sean Murray, for letting us crash the crash your book events. Uh, it was truly an honor to be a part of it also thank you to doug beal and chris marlowe shout out to tattered cover for hosting us and letting us stay a little past closing uh to finish up uh, the book signing and and uh clean up as well thank you to everyone who came out to support the book and the podcast reminder you can pick up if gold is our destiny at your local bookstore or on amazon and hardback or ebook you can follow sean on twitter at Sean P. Murray, one, one, one. Now, go ahead, go ahead. Really quick shout out to our our producer, Curtis Ward, Ward, for putting like that entire thing together for us. Like, wow. Like, I don't think you guys understand the work Curtis does behind the scenes to help just keep this podcast going and flowing. And every video you see, every episode you see, every 
it just literally everything behind the scenes is, is Curtis. So just a big, big, big shout out to you, man. Thank you for everything you do for this team. Yeah, thank you, Curtis. And shout out to all the other USA Volleyball staff who came to the event and came and showed up early to help us mm -hmm. set up, uh, stayed late to help us clean up. Uh, truly means a lot to to have that support um, and just really looking forward to doing another event like this in the future, near future, hopefully. Absolutely. Yep. Now. On to upcoming events. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. The Beach Tour Challenge Maldives, October 13th through the 16th. Next up, the Beach Tour, Beach Pro Tour Dubai Challenge 1 on October 22nd through the 25th. And the Dubai Challenge 2, October 27th through the 30th. The Norseca Beach Tour Punta Cana. Oops, that's an old event. That one forgot that one, we forgot to we forgot to get rid of that one from the old runner show. There we go. All right. Moving on to uh, moving on to a few beach tour events uh, coming up on the junior side. The Mad Sand Juniors BRQ in Plano, Texas, October 22nd. The SSOVA October Halloween BRQ St. Pete Beach, Florida, October 29th through the 30th. Good luck to everyone. More details and all upcoming events can be found at usavolleyball.org. Can't blame you. It's a fun word to say. So, you know, <laughs> I, I would have left it in there too. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but wait. There's more. We just have a few more announcements on the indoor club side of things uh, regarding events and registration specifically. Registration is now open for the following events as of today, um, as of 12 p.m. Eastern time today. The 2022 Boys Mountain Quad. <clears throat> Look at me. I messed it up, too. Don't worry, Steven. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> the 2022 Boys Mountain Classic Qualifier in Salt Lake City, Utah. The 2023 Salt Lake City Girls 18s qualifier in Salt Lake City, Utah. Weekend one and weekend two of the Sunshine Classic qualifier in Orlando, Florida. Weekend one and weekend two of the ASICS Show Me qualifier in Kansas City, Missouri. <clears throat> we also have weekend one and weekend two of the Salt Lake City qualifier in Salt Lake City, Utah. We got a lot of events in Salt Lake this year, this coming year. I cannot wait. Exciting. For Exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, good luck to all teams in the registration process. If you guys have any questions, comments or concerns, you can always email events at usav.org and somebody from our events team will get back to you as soon as possible. Um, for more information on dates, divisions and deadlines that can be found at usavolleyball.org. I'll take it from here. Remember, listeners can rate and review, share with friends, family, teammates. It really helps this podcast grow and support us, uh, reach new listeners, do more live events like yes. the one we just did on Saturday. It really helps. Thank you so much for all your support. Want to chat with us? Do you know a club that might uh, that might be good to be featured on the podcast? You can email us at the USAB show at usab.org leave us feedback and let us know how we're doing let us know any future topics future guests that you want to hear from reminder new episodes drop every other wednesday until next time thank you for listening to the usa volleyball show the official podcast of usa volleyball this has been the usa volleyball show with clarence hughes and stephen munson produced by curtis ward our content producer is lara fawcett our marketing lead is Bree Jaycox. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate and review. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the USA Volleyball Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.